Amen. Please be seated. Good morning and thank you once again for being with us. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Over the last uh, two weeks, this now being the third week, so I guess over the last three weeks, we've looked at our core values as a church. We, we saw two weeks ago, or three, three weeks ago, two weeks, we saw two Sundays ago, I guess, uh, that we should uh, first love God. And we looked at that in Matthew chapter 22, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. Last week, we looked at loving others, so we, we took that command from Jesus in Matthew 22 that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. but we also went and, and looked at Jesus' command to his disciples that the world would know we were his by our love for one another. And this morning, we're going to look at that third core value, we as a church, to change the world. And, and at the end of the day, this is really just wrapped up in the commitment or the commission from Jesus at the very end of his life, the great commission as we see it in Matthew 28, and we see it repeated in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. We'll be in Matthew chapter 28 this morning, beginning in, whoa, I am in Galatians. Y'all are supposed to be in Matthew, hopefully I'll get there. We'll be in Matthew 28, beginning, uh, beginning in verse 16. Stand with me, if you would, in honor of God's word. Now the eleven disciples, that would be because Judas, of course, had killed himself after betraying Jesus. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this great commission would be more than a literary experience for us this morning. We would see it as the marching orders from Jesus to go and change the world around us. Be with us this morning. I pray that this text would come alive in our hearts and our ears and our minds. That, Father, as it is a living, breathing document directly from you, Lord God, that it would set our hearts on fire. Convict us, Lord God. Challenge us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. What is this great commission? What is this command? The command of the great commission there, of course, is go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I believe that there are two great challenges. By the way, not a lot of introduction this morning. We're jumping straight in. I think there are two great challenges to the church when it comes to the Great Commission or to the gospel specifically. The first challenge, the first temptation for us is that we would, we would distort the gospel. The second would be that we would assume the gospel. Now, hear me, when I say that we would distort the gospel, I want to suggest to you that especially as an evangelical church that believes in the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit of God to change lives, I don't believe that churches intentionally distort the gospel most of the time. There are very few people, there, there are some, there are very few people who are committed to a Bible-believing church that would walk in and say, I want to change what 
the Bible says. Or I want to change people's understanding of it. Instead, we can distort the gospel by sort of neglecting certain aspects of the gospel. We're seeking to oversimplify the gospel to such a point in time that we've actually lost the message of the gospel. For instance, if we take the gospel and we say that the gospel is just your personal testimony, we've distorted the gospel. Because the gospel is not your personal testimony. Your personal testimony is your experience of how the gospel changed your life. If we say that the gospel is a spiritual experience, we've distorted the gospel. Because the gospel at its core is not spiritual. At its core, the gospel is historical. The fact that Jesus died, was buried, was in the grave three days, rose again, and ascended into the day at the right hand of the Father is not a spiritual reality. It is a historical reality. As a matter of fact, it is the most important historical reality in all the universe. Folks, we recognize the historical value of Jesus Christ if for no other reason than for the simple fact that he became the hinge upon which all of history turned. Even the godless have to acknowledge Jesus as the place where the old period was turned into the new period. Where no longer was it before Christ, we now date it until after Christ because Jesus is the fulcrum upon which the entire thing Bends. We've got to be careful, though, that we don't distort the gospel. The gospel has got to be more than a spiritual reality. It's got to be more than your experience. The gospel is more than Jesus in my heart. I don't know what Jesus in my heart actually even means from a historical perspective. You understand? From a, a strict perspective, Jesus is not in your heart. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside you. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there he is interceding on our behalf. And it is important that we get the historical realities of the gospel right. We can't distort it. Number one. Number two, we can't assume the gospel. Churches get into a mess when they begin to assume the gospel. What do I mean when I say assume the gospel? We begin to talk about everything else and assume that the gospel sort of gets caught up in there in, in the end. Now this is kind of like assuming that people are going to make the right kind of choices when it comes to the way they eat. You know, so if you talk to your kids about how important it is to eat healthy and if you talk to them about how they should make good choices... And then you give them the opportunity to make that good choice. Very few of them are just going to naturally gravitate towards broccoli and water if you give them M&M's and Coke, right? We assume that they're going to do the right thing, but we assume that without training them, without regularly emphasizing to them. Well, we recognize that as parents, that's crazy. We've got to continue to give it. The same thing holds true in the church. We can't assume the gospel. I can't assume that everybody who walks through the doors, into the doors of this church have actually been exposed to the truth of the gospel. To hear from somebody's mouth that God loves you. That God loved you so much that He sent His only Son to die for you. That you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That as a result of your sin you deserve hell. But Jesus died on a cross to take your sin. He became your propitiating sacrifice in mind. He died. He took the death that we deserve. On the cross of Calvary, he was buried in the grave. But three days later, he overcame because death couldn't hold him and the grave couldn't keep him. And there in that moment, he has secured for us the right that we may be called sons and daughters of the Most High. Jesus has saved us. Amen. we got to talk about that. 
When people come to join our church, those of you that have been through our Next Steps class or even have sat and talked with me one-on-one, they walk in and, and sometimes they want to come join our church after having been part of another church. And they say, I'm, I'm going to come and I'm going to move my letter from such and so Baptist church in such and so place. They're still going to hear this from me. They're going to hear a gospel presentation in that moment. Why? Because I hope that they'll be members of our church. But more than being members of my church, I want to make sure that they are members of the kingdom of God. So we don't assume that just because somebody grew up in the church that they ever heard the gospel. I don't assume that just because you grew up at Malvern Hill that you ever heard the gospel. Why? Because sometimes our eyes have been blinded and our ears have been so dull that we've not heard. And so we're going to continue to say the gospel over and over and over again until such time as it penetrates beyond out here in front of you somewhere and makes it all the way down into your heart. We're going to talk about the gospel because we're going to assume and pray, not that everybody knows the gospel that walks in here. We're going to operate under the assumption that if we're doing our job as followers of Jesus Christ, there are going to be people who are going to walk into the doors of our church who have never heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if everybody that shows up here loves Jesus, we're not doing our job right. You understand? That was the introduction, actually. I, I usually try to have like some kind of fancy little quote or something, but it just wasn't there today. We've got to make sure that we don't assume the gospel. We've got to make sure that we don't distort the gospel. The gospel must be proclaimed in all of its robustness, and it must be proclaimed regularly in every corner and aspect of the church and of our lives. That's what this great command is, but it's more than just a command to go and tell. What is he? he says to make disciples, doesn't he? This is the robustness of this gospel command. The historical reality is that Jesus died, was buried, rose from the grave, and ascended to be with the Father. That is historically true. But there's a greater robustness of the command that we don't just go and throw the gospel out, but that we seek to make disciples. We want to do all that we can to not just see people come to know Jesus, but brought into the relationship of the church where they can grow in godliness and grow in Christ-likeness, that they can be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's the robust teaching of Jesus' word, that we multiply this message through the membership of, of his family so that we may bring more and more people in. These are the opportunities that we have. But what is this Great Commission? How is it that we might change the world through this message. This morning I want us to look at three things that I'll just be honest with you, I think have often been overlooked in a proclamation of the Great Commission. I think that we often neglect to recognize the authority of Jesus, the command of Jesus, and the promise of Jesus in this passage of Scripture. And I want to begin this morning by talking about the proclamation of Jesus' authority. Jesus begins the Great Commission this way. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of it. Jesus is the king. I want to make sure you grasp that. Jesus is in charge. Now, we don't fully appreciate the power of ultimate authority because we're Americans. And as Americans, we don't recognize much ultimate authority. We are currently watching an impeachment trial in the Senate of the United States precisely because nobody in our government has ultimate authority. Whether you agree with the impeachment or you don't, what we should celebrate is that the constitutional order is intact in that there are checks and balances in our government that allow for these things to take place. We don't submit to ultimate authority. And as a result, we sometimes struggle to really grasp what this looks like. 
that in some places around the world, even today, and more common than not in, in, in history, there have been people who had such incredible authority that they spoke and people lived or died with the sound of their voice. Every breath that you took was dependent upon the willingness of the ruler to allow you to do that. Folks, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, I want you to understand what Jesus is saying is that he is the supreme ruler of all things. He is absolutely, totally, and utterly in control. There is nothing that exists outside of his sovereign control and power. There is not one molecule or atom in all of creation over which Jesus does not proclaim mine. It all belongs to him. Every minute, every second, every thought, everything is Jesus's. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when Jesus says that it's his, we are to understand and hear as his followers that we are bound to obey him. He alone can dictate to the world and he alone can dictate to us as his followers what he says is the law that we must follow. And as it relates to the Great Commission then, we are to evangelize precisely because Jesus said to. I want you to notice it's not only earthly authority that Jesus has. He has that, right? He has that, but it's heavenly authority. When the Bible speaks about authority, it often speaks of heavenly powers or authorities. Consider with me Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Many of you probably have that one memorized. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In Jesus' earthly ministry, he displayed his authority over sickness, death, and the demonic. In his death and resurrection, he displayed his authority over hell and the grave. Death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep him. Jesus has all authority. Period. All of it. Even the demons shudder when they hear his name because Jesus is in complete control. John Stott summarized it this way. The fundamental basis of all Christian missionary enterprise is the universal authority of Jesus. If the authority of Jesus were circumscribed on earth, if he were but one of many religious teachers, one of many Jewish prophets, one of many divine incarnations, we would have no mandate to present him to the nations as the Lord and the Savior of the world. But understand, he is. He's not one among many. He is unique among all. He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. He has all authority. And since He is not one among many, since He is unique in His power and authority, Stock goes on to say, we dare go to all nations. And only because of all authority in heaven and on earth is His do we have any hope of success. Do you understand that? We can be successful in this gospel enterprise because he is the king. He is reigning supreme over all. Jesus could only command the great commission because he has all of the authority. The disciples looked to Jesus, and Jesus wanted to make sure that they understood that he was more than a teacher. He was more than their friend. He was all of those things, but even more, he has all authority, and he can command us to carry the gospel. The, the Great Commission is a proclamation of Jesus' authority. Second thing this morning, 
The Great Commission is a command to carry the gospel. There is no plan B. Now, when we look at the order of our core values, I want you to, to understand that I do believe from the bottom of my heart that loving God has to come first. I believe that. Some have said, what is the most important commitment from, from Christians? And some would say that that has to be evangelism. Others would say that it has to first and foremost be a, uh, the, the love of God. Right? So there, 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 there can be a debate that arises sometimes in the church. Is the, the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Or is the chief end of man to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Folks, the two don't exist as enemies of one another. We are commanded first and foremost to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But God is most glorified in the salvation of sinners. Do you understand that? We must proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we don't assume it, the reason that we talk so much about it, why is it that we don't simply talk about loving God and assume that the rest of it will catch up? Because the reality is it won't unless we are regularly reminded that there is an impetus to get out and to communicate the good news of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why don't we proclaim the gospel? Maybe because we don't really believe that there are people who are dying and going to hell outside of the hope of Jesus Christ. Hell is real and it really awaits those who have not trusted Jesus. So we must take the gospel. Side note, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then hear me. Hell is real. And you do not have to go there. There is a hope for you in the person of Jesus Christ. Would you give your life to Christ today? Would you be saved today? Would you be free from the burden of sin and glory in the power of the blood of Jesus? Christians, we must take the gospel. Church, we must take the gospel. In the introduction to our sermon this morning, we considered the specifics of the command to carry the gospel. Right now, I want to focus simply on the command here that is given. Jesus says, go. We must take it. We must make disciples. If you've been a part of our church for any period of time, you've heard me make reference to the fact that when Jesus says go right here, that verb go in the original is sort of an ongoing action that might be best interpreted this way. As you go. An ideal of, of a lifestyle evangelism. Now many have sort of eschewed, sort of you know, been unhappy with the idea of lifestyle evangelism because oftentimes what people term lifestyle evangelism does real good on the lifestyle and sort of does real bad on the evangelism. Somehow we do real good at living life together and real bad at actually sharing Jesus with others. So let me, let me offer a different sort of definition explanation for what it looks like for as we go folks we need to intentionally seek out opportunities to share the gospel through the course of our daily lives we need to intentionally seek out opportunities to share the gospel throughout the course of our daily lives this really gets at the great commission does this mean mission trips are bad no absolutely not go but answer this for me. What mission trip is going to be organized to reach your neighbor or your coworker or your classmate? What mission trip is going to be organized to reach your neighbor or your coworker or your classmate? 
You see the issue here? If your evangelism is confined to mission trips or vacation Bible school here at church or other opportunities that are specifically created for those things here within our church body, then there are literally dozens and dozens of people in your life with whom you will never share the gospel and who may never learn the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. How many people have had more than a dozen conversations with you in your life and have never heard you invite them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? How many? If that seems a little bit too overwhelming for you, then let me just ask you this. Who is the one person in your life for whom you've been praying and with whom you are hoping to share the gospel in the next three or four months? Who is it? Who is the one person that you could lead to Jesus in the next year? Who is that person? How intentional are you in seeking to share the good news of the gospel with that person? You may think you're not... Thank you. That's, that's that cassette coming out. Y'all have really done something to me. There's an I in here. That was supposed to see think, but I said thank. We don't talk that way in cowpens. You may think you're no good at it. But folks, let me just give you some encouragement. God can use your obedience and my obedience to fulfill His purposes. I'm going to say that again. God can use your obedience to fulfill His purposes. I'm going to say it one more time because it gets me excited. God can use your obedience to fulfill His purposes. My kids don't like to obey. All right, They're not in here, so I'm going to talk trash about them. None of them are in here. All four of them are out over there doing whatever they do. Learned about Jesus and all that other stuff. But they, they would rather do anything than simply obey. I don't know. It's, it's sin in them. It's that original sin that gets wells up within them. And all of our kids are the same way. Right? We'll say something simple like put your shoes on. That could be a simple command. Y'all have all done this with your children before. Put your shoes on. And they say, but I was going to blah, 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 whatever that thing might be. I was going to, you know, clean off the counter or walk the dog or cut cartwheels or, 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 you know, flush the toilet or clean the house. And the end of the day, the only thing that you as a parent actually care about is them putting on their shoes. Right? Did you put on your shoes? No, but I did blah, 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 blah. Did you put on your shoes? No, but I actually sailed around the world three times in the time it took you to ask me that question again. I really don't care. Did you put on your shoes? No, but Dad, I made my bed and I waxed the floors and Dad, I changed the oil in the car. Do you have your shoes on? And they're just staring at the floor. It's like, you don't understand, kid. You didn't have to do anything but put your shoes on because I'm trying to leave and I can't leave while you're standing there in your socks. How often is the same thing true of our obedience to Jesus? He says, go and make disciples. And we go, well, Jesus, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. But did you go? Did you make disciples? Did you carry the good news? Did you? But I did this, I did this, and I fed the poor, and I did this, and I, and I, and I loved my neighbor. And I did, but did you do that? But, 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 did you? No. Why? I didn't think I could. Well, you see, Jesus, I'm a lot more comfortable, if we can just be honest, I'm a lot more comfortable doing something nice for somebody than I am sharing the gospel. See, see Lord, if, if we can be honest, I'd, I'd rather leave a $100 tip for that waitress in need than to actually share the gospel. 
God, if, if I'd be honest with you, I'd rather care for the dying than invite them to come to church with me and sit down with them and help them understand God's Word. Well, Jesus, the truth of the matter is, I just don't know if I can. Then I get to say it to you one more time. You ready? God can use your obedience to fulfill His purposes. The devil will condemn you and convince you that you have no great abilities in the realm of evangelism, in the realm of disciple making. But God can use your obedience. Consider the words of C.S. Lewis. Now C.S. Lewis is perhaps the most significant and well-known Christian convert in the 20th century. C.S. Lewis at the age of 31 or 32 goes from militant atheist to born-again, God-loving Christian. He goes from being sort of distant to being congenial and engaging. C.S. Lewis goes on to become the Christian voice of Great Britain during World War II. C.S. Lewis's impact was so significant, the book that you all know as Mere Christianity was actually created as a series of radio broadcasts that C.S. Lewis gave during World War II. Bombs were dropping, and C.S. Lewis is giving uh, radio... Did I call them radio podcasts? Did I just do that? I said broadcast. Oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> bombs are dropping in Britain, and C.S. Lewis is broadcasting. The hope of Jesus... So what in the world did it take to get a man like C.S. Lewis to give his life to Christ? Now remember, this is a man that is a genius, okay? He knows lots of languages. And one of his primary areas of study, he was a professor, was Norse mythology. Now folks, we don't even know how to spell that, much less study it. He had studied every great mythology and most of the world's great religions for most of his life. As a professor at Oxford, consider these words. What has been holding me back has not been so much a difficulty in believing as a difficulty in knowing. You can believe a thing, or you can't believe a thing while you are ignorant at what the thing is. Only after reading the New Testament did C.S. Lewis acquire the knowledge and begin to understand what eventually formed the basis of his faith. C.S. Lewis had read everything except God's Word. C.S. Lewis was challenged because somebody walked into his office one day and said, I am growing convinced of the historical reliability of the Gospels of Jesus Christ. And C.S. Lewis couldn't speak to him because C.S. Lewis had never read the New Testament. And when he read the New Testament, it profoundly impacted his life. The gospel of Jesus Christ saved him. C.S. Lewis wasn't saved primarily because of a profound, deliverance, a profound delivery of the gospel. C.S. Lewis, Lewis wasn't saved because somebody debated the merits of God's goodness and holiness and of the value of God's word to him. 
C.S. Lewis wasn't saved because somebody led him through the Romans road. C.S. Lewis wasn't saved because somebody gave him a Billy Graham track. C.S. Lewis was saved because somebody walked in and said, have you read God's word? And he read God's word and it changed his life and the rest is history. God can work through your obedience. When's the last time you asked somebody if they'd read God's word? When's the last time you gave somebody a New Testament or a Bible or a Gospel of John and said, have you read this? Would you read this? Could we talk about this? See, here's what I want you to understand. You might not feel like you've got this whole evangelism thing figured out, but you can tell the story of your conversion. You can invite people to read the Bible. The Word of God is powerful, and if you can expose people to God's Word, you have a chance to welcome them into God's kingdom. There's a command that we carry the gospel. And we don't have any choice but to obey it because the one who gave it is the one who has all authority. And he has said to his people, go. So folks, as you're going, take the good news. But you say, Craig, I'm still afraid. I'm still scared. What if I can't? Do you know that Jesus gives us one final promise here that is so good that we just can't walk away from it? It's a promise that we can depend on. The KJV says, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Right here in my ESV, it says, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see that? Whether it was the 1611 King James or the 2003 English Standard Version, it all carries with the same understanding, doesn't it? Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus has promised to be with us. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus gave this promise. When he was telling his disciples in John 14 that he was going to be leaving them, Jesus gives one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus said, you're not going to be all by yourself. Where I go, you're going to come with me. And if I leave, I'm going to come back again. I'm not going to leave you alone. He even says, hey, I'm going to go to the Father and he's going to send the helper to help you. That's all in John 14. But then again, this still isn't a new promise from God. This is a carryover from an old covenant. Think back, way back to one of those verses you memorized when you were in the youth group if you grew up in the church. Deuteronomy chapter 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Why? For it is the Lord your God who goes. Now, this passage of Scripture, that verse is given from Moses to Joshua. This is the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. The children of Israel are fixing a crossover into the promised land. Moses is dying. And he's transferring leadership from himself to Joshua. And Moses knows that when Joshua takes over leadership of this group of people that may exceed a million, that he's going to be overwhelmed, that he's going to be scared, he's going to be uncomfortable. Joshua has been Moses' secretary for all these years. But now it's time for Joshua to step out of the shadows and in to the limelight. I sat in a meeting with a guy a while back and uh, uh, he, he was asked some questions about how to lead a church and how to do this and that. And the guy laughed. He said, well, it's, it's, uh, it's hard for me to say. I've, I've, I've been on staff at churches for 15 years, but I've only been a senior pastor for four months. And so I've not really had to make decisions in the past. I just had to obey. Now it's a little different because everybody's looking at me to make the decision. This is what's happening to Joshua. Up to that point, Moses took all the shots. He called the shots, but he took the shots. You understand? It's lonely at the top, and when you're at the top, everybody's taking a shot. Moses got all the shots, and Joshua stood back. 
He was Moses' sounding board. He was Moses' comforter. But at the end of the day, he could still hide in the shadows while Moses took all the heat. Moses is dying. Joshua, I need you to lead these people. We've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The conquest is upon us, and Joshua, it's on you. And Moses gives Joshua that word from the Lord. That's the word that you memorized, but you didn't always remember all the details. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua, you don't have to do this all on your own. Folks, I want you to understand that the Great Commission was a recommissioning of sorts for the new people of God. Jesus' disciples would have almost certainly hearkened back to Joshua's commission from Moses. They would have understood the implications. Here's the implication of Jesus to his disciples and to all of us just before he ascends to be with the Father. Right there in Matthew chapter 28 verse 20. Jesus says, I am with you. And because I am with you, you can be strong and courageous. Do not fear. He's going to go on at one point and say, what can man do anyway? Don't fear man, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. What can man do? You say, Craig, this whole idea of evangelism has overwhelmed me and made me nervous and uncomfortable. Craig, you tell us to change the world, but Craig, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. What can I do? And, and folks, sort of the, 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 the little reality holds true, even if it is sort of cliche. You might not be able to change the world today, but you might be able to change the world for one person, Right? Where can you start? Can you start with one decision, one conversation, one prayer, one opportunity? Whose world can you change today? If you can't change the whole world, can you change the world for somebody? You say, but Craig, it's, it's a little overwhelming. Can I remind you? Can I remind you that all authority belongs to Him? And He's given us a command. Folks, I'm not trying to be a jerk to you, but I just want you to understand that we don't get to say, I can't. We just don't. Jesus told us to go. Period. There is no plan B. Hell is a very real place. And it is reserved for those who have not experienced salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. There is one name given by man under which men are given under heaven by which men can be saved, and that is only the name of Jesus Christ. There are not roads that lead to heaven. There is a narrow way, and he is Jesus. And we have the hope. There's an authoritative command that we must carry the gospel, but then there's a promise that we don't have to do it all on our own. What of this Jesus? Why should we? Folks, at the end of the day, we sort of get stuck with the apologetic question, don't we? The old, he's a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Why should we follow him? He's either crazy or crook or the Christ. He's deluded or deceptive or he's divine. He's either a fool, a phony, or the faithful one. He's a kook or a con artist or the king. Folks, he's either unhinged or unbelievable or the ultimate reality but if we come to believe that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords if he is indeed the lord and the sovereign over all the universe 
then everybody needs to know him, and we have no choice but to share him. He's not a good man. He's not a great philosopher. He's none other than the king of the universe, and all authority belongs to him. He makes the rules. He sets the standard, and there is only one way that you can be right in this universe. What is this great commission? It is the only hope for the world. You and I were destined for hell, but Jesus broke the curse of sin for you and for me, and all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And the gospel is what? It is the good news that this Jesus came to earth and died for you and me. G.K. Chesterton once said that it's not simply good news. It's news that seems too good to be true. Do you need Jesus today? Do you? See, it's good news for all who need the Lord. So today I hope that most of us leave encouraged to go and share the good news. But I would be remiss if I assumed that gospel that everybody that was in this place today already had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would allow me, I'd like to share with you this gospel that drives us here at Malvern Hill and that drives me. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and that includes you and that includes me. We've all lived for ourselves instead of living for Him. And as a result of our sin, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And when the Bible says death, it means an everlasting punishment in a very real place called hell. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say, but Craig, how in the world? Could we deserve such? While we were still sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for you and for me. Now the Apostle Paul says, scarcely would, a good, would, would somebody die for a good man, but Jesus would go so far as to die for his enemies. That's the kind of love that he has. The Bible goes on to say, not only did Christ die for you, the Bible says that if you would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'd be saved. Sinners bound for hell have the opportunity to become saints bound for heaven. You don't deserve it and neither do I. But Jesus loved you enough. Jesus loved you even when you didn't want it. Jesus loved you when you didn't deserve it. And you're not too tough to receive it. And you're certainly not so good that you don't need it. For all have sinned fallen short of God's glory. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him, upon Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. I don't know why you're here today. Let me back up. I don't know why you think you're here today. But I know this. I know that God has you here on purpose. And God desires that you would hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Remember what I said all the way back at the beginning? We're going to tie it all back in together. So we don't assume the gospel of Jesus Christ here. Because I don't assume that just because you've sat under the preaching of anybody or sat under the ministry of anybody anywhere or sat in a hundred sermons or one sermon, I don't assume that just because the gospel was presented that you actually opened your ears and your heart to hear it and receive it. So this morning I'm coming to you and I'm I'm begging you, please. Would you get over yourself Would you stop worrying about what everybody else might think? Would you do business with Jesus? 
Would you be honest about your own sin and your own shame? Would you come today and allow Jesus to wash away your sin and make you new and whole? Would you be willing to even come today and allow Jesus to take your pain and your shame? See, some of you have kept Jesus at arm's length because you've had a hard life. Difficult things have happened. The truth of the matter is, you know that you're a sinner and you know that you need Jesus, but you're so angry that you've been unwilling to allow Jesus to even take your anger and your pain because it's the only thing that you know. Your grief is so comfortable that it's a fear thing for you to turn loose of it. And I want you to know that Jesus can take your sin and your shame He can even take the sins that have been committed against you. He can even take the pain of sin's curse and wipe it away and use it for your good and for His glory. Jesus is enough. And today, He wants to save you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, it's no shame to not know Him. But it would certainly be a shame to walk out of here and still not know Him. Would you come today and experience life in Jesus Christ? Pray with me this morning. Father, I pray that we would be obedient to your Spirit's call. Father God, as you work in us and among us, and Father God, the horrors of hell and the beauty of heaven would be real to us today. That, Father, we would look to the cross of Jesus. Where God, and there upon that cross where our Savior died, that we would see the hope that ran down in your precious blood that was spilled. Lord God, would we look to an empty tomb and know that, Father, the firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ, secures for us the opportunity to not experience death hell but Lord God has secured for us the opportunity to experience salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ Lord God would you draw sinners to yourself Lord God would you break through the hardness in our hearts Lord God soften our hearts our minds, our eyes, our ears to receive for us all that you have in Jesus Christ we pray Amen Stand with us this morning and sing.